pray together, Father in heaven. Just simply want to say, wow. I stand in awe of you. I am amazed that we can be in your presence together. And Father, thank you that we can sing, that we can hear from your word, that we have today, yet again, another opportunity to encounter you together in community. And I ask that as we continue our series in and through the book of Ephesians as a part of our overarching theme of identity this fall and chapel, Lord, that our hearts would be bursting at the seams with praise and thanksgiving as we bless your glorious grace together. Lord, in all this, we ask in Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said, amen, amen. One to imagine and invite you to imagine with me this morning, if I told you, no, if I promised you that for each one who is sitting in chapel this morning, that you have suddenly been chosen for a special scholarship fund and your tuition at this very moment is paid in full. Your dining funds, your dining funds now have an unlimited amount so scan, swipe, pass, share. Your closet is now filled with every item, outfit, accessory, and style you could ever want. You have in your wallet a gas card that will never run out or expire. You have received an unexpected and unannounced inheritance from a distant rich relative, and your bank account will never again go into the negative, and you always have more than enough funds to eat out, shop, and play for the rest of your lives. Your GPA will now and forever be a 4.0. You will land an internship, a paid internship, at the end of the week that will guarantee you a solid job with benefits and a company car. And your social media followers have suddenly quadrupled and you've reached the status of Insta-famous with numerous friends reaching out to you daily to join them in fun and exciting experiences. Oh, and a DM is waiting in your notifications from your future spouse. You can check after chapel. And I'll go ahead and add that all of your spiritual development credit requirement has been fulfilled already. How would you respond if all of this is true? Now, just a moment ago, some words from the book of Ephesians were read. And in case you didn't catch it, the opening line is going to come up on screen. In Christ, you already have every spiritual blessing. Every spiritual blessing. Everything. Now, I think we all too often value material blessings over spiritual blessings. We treasure earthly and temporal blessings over heavenly and eternal blessings. Um, I don't think maybe, uh, as Isa was reading passionately, maybe, maybe even a little too quickly, maybe you didn't catch everything that was read in there, and maybe you would have, if you did, understand it in the same way like you did if I asked you to imagine with me this morning all of these physical, material, earthly, temporal blessings were yours at this very moment. I think you would have stood to your feet. 
I think some of you would have fallen down. I think some of you literally would have fainted because of so much excitement. And I think you would have had um, maybe a repetition of that uh, Minneapolis miracle moment a couple seasons ago when Stephon Diggs had that uh, amazing touchdown catch to, 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 to you, you, you know what I'm talking about, right? Okay, you'd freak out. You'd freak out. But here's the thing. I think the same was true for the Ephesian audience that Paul was writing to over 2,000 years ago. You see, ancient Ephesus as a Roman province was a port city that was considered the gateway to all of Asia, which meant this, among other things, it was a wealthy city. It was considered the center of learning. It was the hub of several land routes where people would travel to and through from all over the Roman world. It housed the magnificent temple of Artemis, which was considered the seven wonders of the world, one of the seven wonders of the world. The Ephesian people gloried in their material prosperity, and their reputation was known throughout the whole Roman Empire. But you see, when Paul brought the gospel to Ephesus during a second missionary journey, it turned the whole city upside down. In Acts 19.20, it said that the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And I love how scripture says this. It says there at that time, there was no little disturbance in the way. Which is a funny way of saying the gospel brought a huge disturbance over what people in ancient Ephesus were valuing. Because at that time, when, when, when Paul brought the gospel, it was through not only the gateway for all material blessing, it became a gateway for spiritual blessing as the, all of Asia, because of it, began to know the gospel. And lives were being turned around. Lives were being transformed. So much so that people were turning from their pagan practices, and they created their own burnt offerings of sorts and made a huge bonfire of their magic arts books and burned them in the public square. There was one man, a, a Demetrius, a silversmith, who made these little cute little temple shrines of Artemis. He was being put out of business, and he got mad, and he created a riot. And, uh, and, and then, and, and because the material wealth was being attacked. In other words, again, the, the gospel brought a disturbance of what people were valuing. What, and they were beginning to turn from setting their hope on material blessings to spiritual blessings. So it's to this audience that Paul writes to unpack the immensity of the Christian spiritual wealth. And to do this, in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, Paul writes the longest sentence in the New Testament. So we have punctuation in our English translations. In the Greek, it is one continuous, ongoing, run-on sentence. He is so overwhelmed with the fullness of God's blessing that he pens a spirit-inspired, elegant, Christ-exalting sentence that consists of 250 words that unpacks the comprehensive, complete, all-encompassing, superabundant nature of the spiritual blessings God has made available to all who are in Christ. So uh, in this sentence, it begins and ends with praise, a right response when we consider the magnitude and the gravity of God's blessing given to the Christian. It's a sentence that mentions Paul's favorite phrase, one that was introduced a couple weeks ago when we looked at the introduction, in Christ, and it's mentioned no more than 10 times in these 12 verses. It covers, this one sentence, covers all of time from eternity past to the present to eternity future. And since it's the fullness of God's blessing, one of the many of the Trinitarian formulas in the, in the book of Ephesians is unpacked here. And it's revealed here in this sentence. You see, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 is a sentence 
that conveys at least three reasons why our spiritual blessings are far superior to any physical blessings we have received and how that leads us to praise the Lord like never before. Paul is literally praising his faith guy. He is so excited. And each reason is connected to a period of time and a person within our Trinitarian Godhead. Because God's spiritual blessings are far superior, not only in quantity, but also in quality, because the ultimate spiritual blessing is him giving himself to us. So we see here, if we look again, if you have your Bibles open in Ephesians 1, at verse 3, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father. So there's God the Father. God is the source of our blessings, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ. Jesus is the sphere from which we receive these blessings. With every spiritual blessing, So this idea is that the Holy Spirit is the one who then applies these blessings to our souls in the heavenly places. And know what this means is not just blessings we enjoy someday when we get to heaven. It's that the originator, the the, the source, where where the sphere of the realm of which these blessings are in heaven. And and, and literally we are experiencing Jesus' prayer of, of, of his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Which means that these blessings are something that no one can steal. They don't rust. They don't fade. No one can destroy. They are yours. They are secure. So here's the thing. I want to look at three, these three reasons of, of covering a past, present, future, connected to one of the, the, each person of the Trinity that encompasses the full spiritual blessings that we have. So the first point is this, that in Christ, we have the past spiritual blessing of the Father's electing. The past spiritual blessing of the Father's electing. You see, Paul begins by reaching back into eternity past and reveals that we have been chosen. Chosen when? Before the foundation of the world. I love that he says, even as he chose us, and again, here it is, in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Notice the source of this, uh, the, the source of his choice is the Father, and the sphere of the choice is the Son. He chose us in him. We are chosen in him. In other words, from eternity past, God put you and his son Jesus Christ together. The fact that this happened before there was time and space or anything else was created is remarkably significant. This reveals to us that the reason of God's choice lies not in you, lies not in me, but it lies in him. The reason is expressed in the next two words of, that he, of, of what are the hinge of verses 4 and 5. He goes on to say, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself. As, son, as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. You see, the Father's electing ultimately was motivated by love. It was motivated by love. Now, here's the thing. Everyone, every single one of us, finds the doctrine of election, predestination, difficult to understand. Didn't I choose God, someone might say? To which we must answer, yes, and indeed you did freely, but only because in eternity God first chose you. But didn't I decide to follow Christ, ask someone else? To which we must reply, yes, you did, indeed, and freely, but only because in eternity past, God first had decided on you. How is it that God predestines us, yet we also have free will to choose? You see, this is a tension that Scripture reveals, but never resolves. It's, it's a beautiful mystery that is meant to invoke awe and wonder and to inspire worship. You see, But among many other things, this truth completely dismantles the deception that we can somehow earn 
or prove ourselves or become worthy of God's love. Yes, the purpose of his love is that we would become holy and blameless. Remember, we have been given a new name. Remember, the new name, we are saints. So saints of Northwestern, you have been called to be holy and blameless before him, which means in Christ, you already have that, on, that standing positionally, even though practically we still often live blameworthy lives at times. But I like to say it this way, God's love for you is not based upon your behavior that's fleeting, that's changing, that's turbulent, but it's based upon his unchanging character. Or it's been said this way, that God loves you to the degree, not that you are like Christ, but to the degree that you are in Christ, which according to God's loving choice is 100% of the time. So this is true of you, even on your worst day, even on a Monday morning, as you're sitting in your chapel, that God loves you to the degree, not that you are like Christ, but that you are in Christ, which means it's full, it's complete. This is decided to turn from eternity past. And verses 4 and 5 essentially communicate the same blessing and purpose. That we're chosen to be holy and blameless, and that we're predestined for adoption according to the purpose of his will, which is Christ-likeness, to live in a manner according to our new family name. So the reason why, which connects the two verses, again, lies in this phrase, in love. The Father's electing was motivated by love, but also the result of the Father's electing us is adoption into his family. Now, there are two legal ways that was true in Paul's day. It's also true of this way that someone can become part of a family. You're either born into it or you're adopted into it. And Scripture reveals both of those analogies as ways that we are brought into the family of God. That we are born, what, scripture call, what Jesus calls being born again in John 3, but also being adopted into the family of God. But notice that we are adopted, it says, through Jesus Christ. So Jesus himself, in a sense, was adopted and as he was conceived by the Spirit into a physical family, having earthly parents and earthly siblings. But while you and I were all born physically into an earthly family, we have also, in a sense, been spiritually conceived that, and, and have now been born again into a spiritual family, having spiritual Heavenly Father and spiritual siblings. So spiritual adoption, like adoption, comes, though, with a price. And our next point unpacks this, but before we do, notice we got to notice one more thing. That, that we are predestined and adopted um, is all to the praise, verse 6, of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. See, the purpose of the Father's electing is praise. These past blessings ought to invoke exuberant praise. God's blessings are our means to an end. They are not gifts to enjoy in and of themselves. They're pathways for us to enjoy him. See, that God's blessings are meant to point us back to the blesser and express a joyful, heartfelt, authentic praise which fortifies our relationship and family bond with our Heavenly Father and our spiritual siblings as we are all blessed, it says, in the Beloved. Okay, I just have to say it again. You guys make fun of me for this, but it's right here. What's our family name? Beloved. That's right. Blessed us in the Beloved. Beloved is our family name. And see, I think you and I, often, we try to meet our innate sense of belonging and acceptance um, by our various in-groups. All of us are associated or want to be associated with some type of in-group, whether um, that's a sports team, whether that's a choir, whether that's uh, uh, some group, maybe that's a, a different ministry, maybe that you have, uh, you, you have your own family, you have your own clique, you have your own friend group, that type of thing. I remember as a college student sitting in the seats that you're sitting in now, I, I feel like most of my college years, I had this social wandering that took place. 
I never felt like I fully belonged in any one group or another. Because I, I played sports, but yet I wasn't like, I didn't eat, sleep, breathe the sports. And I lived with, I was with my teammates and we went, went off campus as soon as we possibly could. Because another group that I was a part of was residence life, which means <laughs> you need to live here, right? So I was an RA for two years. I was an ARD for another, for, for my last year. And what was so, I, I kind of went back and forth and I'm like, where do I fit? Where do I belong? And the, the, the ironic part is my two best friends from college were neither on the football team or neither in residence life. We both stood, we all stood in each other's light. And the Lord reminded me of something. You know what? I, I have a greater family bond um, with, with, with the greater body of his beloved. That, that, that is what defines me. That is the, that, 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 that my belonging, my need for acceptance is, is here. The Father has already elected. He's already chosen me from eternity past. But this leads to the second thing. Not only do we have the past spiritual blessing of the Father's electing, but secondly, we have the present spiritual blessing of the Son's redeeming. So next, in view of our adoption to God's family, we move into some of the family rights and privileges. Even in Paul's day, under Roman law, adopted children had all the same rights as natural children. In God's economy, under the new covenant, this transferring transferring us from the world into his eternal family is a permanent transaction that results in our ongoing transformation. He says it this way, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. You see, the son's forgiveness does three things. It does, first, it assures us of forgiveness. Of the many things that we can have absolute certainty of is that when we are part of God's family, it means that we have and will be, we are forgiven. Forgiveness of our sin. And remember that I said adoption comes at the price. We will do well to remember often daily the price of our redemption. Redemption, uh, redemption literally means deliverance by payment of a price. It was, it was specially applied to the ransoming of slaves. It was also a term that was used in the marketplace where a va- the value of something was determined by the price one was willing to pay for it. So li- listen, listen to this. L- l- look, look at me right now. Everyone look at me right now. So in other words, the fact that Jesus' redeeming work assures us of our forgiveness, it also reveals the value that he places in our relationship. You see, the cross not only reveals to us the severity of our sin, but also makes known to us the immensity of our value in God. In love, in him, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. Jesus' shed blood transforms us into his beloved. This is all done by his grace that he lavished upon us. I, I love this word, lavish. This speaks of, on one hand, that the, 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 of, of God's superabundant, overwhelming, and scandalous grace. He held nothing back. This isn't a nice, light little application of, of grace. Because, let's be honest, we all have ravished and lavished in a lifestyle of sin, being enslaved. And we were delivered out of it. And he completely lavished. He goes above and beyond to saturate us, to marinate us, literally in his grace, so that we are completely new and free as ones who are forgiven. Yet we need to be reminded that this grace is not something God gives to us. Rather, it is God's giving us himself. But God's redeeming grace was given with all wisdom and insight, which means there's a deeper purpose. So the Son's redeeming also brings complete unity. Verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ to unite all things in him, 
things in heaven and things on earth. You see, now that we're part of God's family, we're, we're a part of his mission. Here, Paul introduces a word that he expounds on later in the letter, mystery. God's plan that existed before there was time is now working itself out in real time. And, let us, and, and he lets us in on the family secret. He essentially says, here, 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 here. Guys, I got this. Here's what I'm doing. My son, Jesus, is going to unite all things for us. And all of heaven and all of earth are going to be united together under an all authority. It's, it's, it, it, he, everything's going to be brought underneath his authority. And here's the cool part. We have a plan. Because later on in Ephesians 1, it says that he gave him his head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. Who's his body? God. So everything, all, all things, everything is going to be brought together under full and complete unity. In the fullness of time, God God's two creations, his whole universe and his whole church will be unified under the cosmic Christ who is the supreme head of both. And see, there's a lot of talk about unity these days, but I think, and I think that's because we experience every day the destructive devices of the devil who sows seeds of that disunity everywhere, including within the church. But God's plan through the redemptive work of his son is to unite all things in him. So one day, all division will be done away with permanently. And one of the many uh, divisions in, in the realms of Paul's original audience was between the relational division between the Jewish and Gentile believers. And so this mystery unfolds. Jesus' redemption will bring reconciliation to all of God's people because God's family is global. And the last aspect here, I'm going to go all the way to 1110, so stick with me, okay? Okay, I got one, got a couple more points. The son's redeeming, this is too good. The son's redeeming releases us to a hopeful inheritance. So he says this, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works out all things according to the counsel of his will. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Um, so and here's, here's the thing. This phrase, obtained an inheritance, is a compound word that carries with it either one of two ideas. It's either that we have been made an inheritance or heritage, or that we're receiving an inheritance or a heritage. So it's saying either that we are God's possession, or that we will be in possession of God in a way that we are not yet. In other words, this is a win-win, and both are backed and illustrated in the Bible. But yet, in this case, I think it's actually more like uh, it's actually more likely that it means that we have been made God's inheritance, because Paul uses the same phrase later on in, in Ephesians one. We'll look at it again next week. In other words, the Father has made us to be His inheritance in the Son. We are Jesus's heritage. That's what he's saying here. Yet all of this comes again with the tension of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Notice here that Paul uses the plural pronoun we. And in reference to the ones who were the first to hope in Christ seems to convey that it was first the Jewish people, whom God first chose to be a people for his own possession. Yet notice again this leads to the response of praise, to the praise of his glory. And it keeps getting better. And we move on to our last point of why our spiritual blessings are superior to physical blessings and why this text leads us to praise our faces off before our Heavenly Father. Because lastly, in Christ, we have the, the future spiritual blessings of the Spirit sealed. He says, in Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. So Paul here references this inheritance came in Him 
it is also in him has come to you also. So Paul seems to be contrasting again God's saving work that first came to the Jews. It's now been made and open to the Gentiles. And I love how Paul lays out the progression here of how all of us, how anyone who's ever lived comes to a saving faith in the Lord Jesus. You hear the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, and believe. So hearing plus believing brings the Spirit's sealing. The sealing for what? Two things about the Spirit's sealing. One, the Spirit's sealing secures for us a promised inheritance. So when someone hears and believes in the gospel, the Holy Spirit becomes the seal or authenticator of the new work that has been done. In Paul's day, this, there was a seal and the letter, uh, that would, that a unique seal of the, of the sender of a letter or a piece of cargo that would contain the seal, the one making the shipment, so that the recipient would know where it came from. The seal is like a ga- an engagement ring. Okay, I don't know, how, how many engagement rings do we have out there? Anyone? I know some people are engaged over the summer, right? Okay, that is an outward sign, a seal saying, I have been spoken for. You put a ring on it. He's, I am his, he is mine. This is heading towards a wedding day. Signals to everyone that you're taken. You're spoken for. You have a bright future ahead of you. So all those in Christ have been given an eternal witness. Not just an, not an external witness, but an internal witness of the Holy Spirit who now resides in you. In the last minute, the Spirit's sealing also guarantees us the full possession of all God's spiritual blessings. So I love how the Holy Spirit is the guarantee. Now Paul says, our so catch this. If you have your Bibles open in verses 11 through 14, notice the progression towards unity from the plural pronouns of us, uh, of us to, to we, to your, and now to our. See, the fullness of all that God has in store for you is yet to be realized. That it's not only the we the, of, the, of the Jews to the you of the Gentiles. Now Paul's talking about it's our inheritance. He's talking about one new family, one new humanity that God is making and creating in Christ. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of, of, of all of the better things and all the fullness of what is to come. In my final 20 seconds, let's praise God for this amazing inheritance that we have. Father in heaven, we moved fast, we moved quickly. There was so much fullness in this passage, in this one sentence. I pray that you would help us to seek it. I pray that you'd help us to savor it. I pray that you'd help us to meditate on it. And Lord, that it would incite awe and wonder and worship in our lives like never before. We love you. We praise you for your glorious grace. And all God's people said, amen. You are dismissed.